Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the paediatric medical education podcast. We're slightly cheating this week with this episode in that it's an episode we've previously recorded for Don't Forget the Bubbles. In this episode, myself and two other colleagues, Damien Rowland and Alastair Munro, the three musketeers, review the current data and literature, particularly around COVID, but other pressing paediatric matters at this time. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Don't Forget the Bubbles podcast. Uh, I'm hosting today. My name's Ian Lewins, uh, PM consultant from Derby. And this is our second episode of the Three Musketeers. I've got to get a jingle for this at some stage. Um, and I'm really pleased to be joined by uh, Drs. Damien Rowland and Dr. Alistair Munro, who are going to join me today to sort of have a chat about things COVID and some recent papers and controversies. Um, morning, Damien. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, thank you very much for the invite. Looking forward to discussion, debate, and maybe a bit of uh, rib tickling as well. Excellent. And, and the musical finale, I, I presume you've practised. Uh, definitely. I, I'm all over it. Excellent. Good. And uh, Alistair, good morning. Uh, how are you, apart from very tired? Yes, I'm good, thanks. Um, I'm a little bit apprehensive now. I've heard there might be rib tickling involved, but uh, yeah, otherwise <laughs> looking forward to having a good discussion. Okay. So, um, one of the suggestions, uh, so we've got some papers to discuss, some things to chat about, um, and the framework that we're going to use is a, a Dr. Rowland trademark, uh, which is to use the acronym COVID, C-O-V-I-D, to have a think through some issues with regards to communication, organisations, vital signs, interventions, and dilemmas, uh, and we'll maybe have a chat around those sorts of things. Um, so let's start with C. Let's start with communication. Um, and I think Damien, the, the paper that you'd brought to our attention, uh, is very, very strong on uh, issues of communication. Yeah. So I mean, th- this is I find quite frankly uh, amazing. Um, it's not really a, a published article. It's more of a uh, in a statement it's from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, It's called COVID-19 Interim Guidance Return to Sports. And the reason this caught my eye is because I've been following some some of the debate about myocarditis. And I think, Ali, actually, can I just, what's what's happened with this? So there seemed to be some publications suggesting that lots of people were getting myocarditis, even if they weren't symptomatic. And this may be a big problem. Um, Quite a bit of stuff's happened with it. It's been a bit of a roller coaster. Um, there was so there, there was an initial paper in JAMA Cardiology that um, seemed to show quite a high proportion of uh, of uh, inpatients with COVID nineteen had signs of uh, myocarditis compared to both uh, uh, like healthy normal people, but then risk factor matched controls. Um, as it turned out, the the data in the paper was all uh completely wrong um, oh, no yeah so no one's entirely sure uh what what happened with with the data but the numbers were completely wrong and it was picked up because basically there were sort of impossible distributions of the data in the tables that, that didn't make any sense so anyway the, the the paper was revised really quickly and they changed the data uh, and as it turned out uh, once the 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 actual data was input there was no longer a statistically significant difference uh, in the features of myocarditis between the patients with COVID and the risk factor matched controls. So there was a, there was a difference between healthy people, but if you took people with all the same comorbidities as the patients with COVID, suddenly 
the the statistically significant differences essentially disappeared. disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's, yeah. It's really interesting. Then, uh, yeah. Go on. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just been loads of stuff since then. I mean, there was a paper that looked at some post-mortem uh, cardiac uh, um, uh, findings that, you know, showed evidence of, uh, you know, myocarditis and viral invasion. And then there's been a few uncontrolled studies looking at cardiac MRI in, uh, you know, healthy people who have had COVID. And then they find these enhancements on MRI but the the people have completely normal troponins and normal CRPs, and so uh, it's sort of it's split opinions really because there's one group of people who have gone, oh hey look, uh, there's bright images on an MRI, we need to be super cautious, and then another group of people going, well we have absolutely no idea what that means if anything at all, and the blood tests are normal, we still don't really know how to interpret this type of imaging because it's completely new. Uh, and so there's um, a lot of fear on one end and a lot of scepticism on the other end, really, based on these uh, sort of uh, slurry of papers that have come out in the past few weeks. Um, I like your description of a slurry of papers. Thank Alistair. you. <laughs> as, a, as a sort of not, you guys are far more involved in research than me. Is this a good time to be involved in research with COVID, or is this an absolutely dreadful time? Because there seems to be a lot of papers that get rapidly published, and then people go, hang on, this is nonsense. I mean, I, I personally say, from some respects, it's an amazing time to be involved in research, because there's so much interest in research at, at the moment. So let, let's let's ignore the fact that some of it's utterly rubbish. The fact that there's a lot of public engagement, there's a lot of uh, on the shop floor, people talking about stuff. I think it's really good just for getting people thinking about the academic process and critical appraisal. So I suppose with my with my Perukian academic educator hat on, it, it's it's brilliant. The flip side is is, and I'm guilty of this myself, it is so much easier now to get turgid research published. Um, and that, that that is a real challenge and is causing confusion for, for everyone involved. And this goes back to sort of communication, I guess, in that now that the world and his dog are experts in, in public health and virology, that people will pick up on tiny little bits uh, and use it to prove what they thought in the first place. Unfortunately, uh, and that's exactly that's exactly what, what is happening. And I think one of the things that might be good about this is a real drive now for everyone to understand. And I'm including kind of clinicians and academics and the, the public in that the world isn't black and white, and we're the media are obsessed with black and white, and that is just not how things work. Yeah, I think that's been a, a, a really strong feature recently because there's such a dual-edged sword to the public engagement in the research because uh, terrible research is being published all the time and was being published before COVID. But the problem is now if you publish terrible research or if you know you publish a paper and you you know grossly over-egg the significance of it in your conclusions that that makes headlines now and suddenly it directs policy. So the, the original JAMA uh, cardiology paper was uh, thought to be responsible for some of the huge American sports leagues cancelling their seasons um, on the fear that they, you know, they might have uh, participants with myocarditis who might be at risk if they went and played football. Um, and, you know, the engagement is great because, as Damien said, people are having to think about science in a way 
that they never did before and are being really engaged. But it does mean that the sort of hogwash that used to come out and uh, just be ignored for all eternity suddenly comes out and people who don't already have the uh, expertise to appraise the significance of research, and particularly when it's just like single papers, um, suddenly the you know the way that that gets implemented or what people draw from it is is quite often a lot more than it should be. And, and Damien's exactly right that it it all gets made very black and white, and it and it gets made into you know catchy headlines when we all know that it often requires a lot more uh, careful consideration than it, than it's often given. Yeah, uh, but in your sort of article, Damien, we're not talking about a small organisation. We're talking about the AAP. Oh yeah, I mean th- th- this is huge. Th- this is the kind of the, the American equivalent of the, the RCPCH. So we're talking about a, a big organisation that directs paediatric care um, in the United States. And so, so what's amazing is is they start off with some not unreasonable statements, uh, saying that there are some children who have had severe presentations. So perhaps. The, this, the inflammatory syndrome, and some of these children have required intubation, uh, have had kidney or cardiac failure. And it seems not unreasonable that if you've had some evidence of cardiac damage, you should probably think about going how you go back to exercise. And they've suggested that restricting exercise and participation for three to six months, that, that might seem extreme, but I can kind of see where they're coming from. But then further down, uh, and I'm going to read this out because it just, just amazes me. The main question still remains about what to do with others infected with SARS who had close contact with an individual with COVID-19. Um, so, or, sorry, or who had close contact. So they're saying you may have had SARS, but with no symptoms or that you've just had close contact. Because of the growing literature about the relationship between COVID-19 and myocarditis, and I think as Ali's explained, I think that li- that literature is not clear cut. All children or adolescents with exposure to SARS-CoV-2, regardless of symptoms, require a minimum 14-day resting period and must be asymptomatic for more than 14 days before returning to exercise and or competition. And I just find that incredible. What it is saying is that any child with any form of symptoms needs to do two weeks off sport. And actually, the, the risks are not there's, there's no evidence that the children are going to come to harm. And what we're doing is we're stopping children doing the things that they need to do to keep themselves both physically and mentally healthy. And I don't understand how a child health organization would, would be putting those risks out. And the only thing I can think of, and I'd be very happy to receive any backlash from America's listeners to this, is from a, a protective insurance-based process rather than really putting the needs of the child first i mean that was my reading of it was i well there was my thoughts on it is surely this there's a there's a litigation somewhere sitting there that that this is trying to um defend against almost because you know there's some as you say there are some really good bits in this but when we're talking about communication and the age that we're in at the moment, this is the one where you go, wow, okay, and there's the headline. It's, uh, it's just, I, 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 I don't really know what to make of it, uh, t- to be honest. There's been lots of stuff where I've seen poor quality debate, um, but I understand that someone's taking, uh, taking an evidence viewpoint and trying to apply it uh, maybe through their own lens, whereas this doesn't seem to apply the correct lens for the problem that is being 
uh, trying to be mitigated against. Uh, I'd, I'd love to get some further feedback uh, on this from those uh, kind of who, who are living and working in America to find their feelings on it. I mean, what, what I don't understand is what there's the need to issue guidance at all uh, on the topic where absolutely no evidence exists at all for for children, uh, you know, in this in this arena. Um, it, it, I, it comes back to sort of a broader point about guidelines, really. We, we all in the medical community seem to feel a need to issue, you know, benchmarks or guidelines for things when quite often no one really has any idea um, what they're doing. And as soon as you draw that line in the sand, you've created a stick with which medical legal people can can beat doctors with if it's not if it's not adhered to and uh, uh and i i don't really i mean this is not again i agree with damien in terms of like the the hyperinflammatory syndrome and stuff like that myocarditis is uh you know is a big feature of that and it seems really reasonable to um just urge caution in in some way but for for to say children who have not had any symptoms or even have been confirmed to have COVID but may have been exposed, um, I'm just not sure what the impetus was or who, who was asking for guidelines about ret- returning to sport, uh, you know, for, for these kids. Uh, and the flip side is that I feel like there's really no consideration of the balance of, of risks and harms here. Like, um, I think... There was a lot of concern about, you know, during, you know, social restrictions and stuff, how much exercise and activity children have been having and what the long term consequences of that are. We know that particularly uh, in the US and the UK as well, that uh, childhood obesity is a major, major issue. You know, there's going to be, you know, serious life years lost as a result of that before even COVID. And if we're now talking about restricting children who may have had exposure you know, from activity for a period of time, it just seems it just seems like the risks and benefits of that have not been considered, or or if they have, it's not evident in the guideline. No, and uh, I'm sure I think I read, but as well as you've got to have your 14 days off, you also need to be cleared by a physician before you start exercising again. I think. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I put something good. I put a quick tweet about this. I just imagine being the the, the, the doctor looking after this child who's brought into your office. I was just thinking, what is going? What, why are you here? What am I supposed to? What am I supposed to do to clear? You never had any symptoms. You never felt unwell. Like, what What do I do to make you more okay to, to go back into sport than you were before? I mean, I think I'd argue the only thing I think whether they've amended this, but I think they do say those with moderate symptoms must be asymptomatic for at least 14 days and obtain clearance from their primary care physician. So I think it's not the group who have just had contact. I think they are trying to say that you've had something. But even then, as you say, Ali, they've not been positive. Um, So you've got this weird consultation of a a patient arriving saying, I had some symptoms which may or not have been related to COVID. I'm now symptom-free. What would you like me to do, uh, uh, family uh, physician or, or GP? And the family physician or GP is going to go, uh, just start doing exercise again. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, really weird. Yeah, and it's you know, uh, this is sort of moving on slightly to to the O with the organisations. It's sort of it's now this has come from the AAP. I guess primary physicians in in America are going to be looking at this and thinking, oh. 
you know, blimey, I've, I've got, do I need to follow this? Do, you know, am I going to be liable if, God forbid, something thing happens with somebody who's, you know, say moderately symptomatic? It'd be interesting to see um, if there's any similar response or guidance from other organisations. And as you say, I can't imagine for one second the RCPCH going to issue anything similar anytime soon well, well they'll do what ali suggests is, is not issue not even consider it because it's not an it's not an issue let's not create work where we don't need it yeah okay um let's move on then um anything else from your perspective damien about organizations in, in this paper so so not not really i mean i think just from from organizational context the thing and we, again we're not going to come to any conclusions here the thing that is filling my inbox in discussion is we've had for a period of time for i think very good reason splitting departments into asymptomatic and symptomatic cohorts to try and prevent spread as we move into winter and get busier that just becomes increasingly difficult to do if you're in a position where you've got a big department it's not a disaster because you can move things around, but even then it does constrain what you can achieve and it, it does cause problems for kind of staff, um, skill mix uh, and deployment. If you're a smaller department, it's ju- just a disaster. So a lot of people are discussing, do going forward, we really need to keep departments split. Now, I'll admit to a bit of a bias. We, we just published something from Leicester and I'll be clear, this was only for patients who were admitted So we don't really know what the magnitude of COVID positivity is. But in over 10,500 patients, only 22 of them were were positive that that we tested for. And there was no spread within the department. Um, There's similar, I think, feelings throughout the community. And I know I think it's your department, Ali, have decided that you're not going to split just on the basis of symptoms. Um, You're going to split on the basis of... uh, bit when you get admitted is that right yeah so we've gone we've just gone back to a single footprint we're 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 lucky in the fact that this is easier because we have cubicles for our acute area so we don't have any bays in the in our acute assessment area so it's felt to be much lower risk to uh be mixing you know so-called blue and red patients because um, ideally, you you don't have to expose any of them. So we've got like a little uh, uh, observation and play area where we don't put anyone who would have uh, usually been been allocated red. But yeah, we're we're back in a back in a, a single single footprint. Yeah, I mean, we are what are we doing. So we've got red side and a green side, which are. Uh, sort of split but but organization it's been really challenging because red side to get to x-ray i've got to walk through the green side um and although we've got red and green x-ray there's still going to be a footfall across both sides and it's it's meant that we've had to um temporarily close our observation unit and and use that as um sort of green side where, where we're seeing people um so it is challenging and you know winter's not even really started to hit yet and i think once bronchiolitis season uh, comes upon us uh, i i am fascinated as to what we what we do whether we sort of continue to try and do that or whether we go this just isn't feasible um and 
we've, what we've done is for inpatients, split the wards, so a red side and a green side, which we can physically keep distanced. Um, but but the, in the ED itself, it, it is incredibly difficult. I think the big problem is going to be as well is surge capacity, because I think most uh, um, emergency department, well, kids' emergency departments uh, during winter end up with just uh, waiting rooms awash with a mix of <laughs> hot, yeah. snotty, vomiting children, children with ankle injuries and all this other stuff. And uh, the problem is if you once you've exceeded your bed capacity and you're, you know, you've got a waiting area of any description, you've sort of, unless you've got capacity for two waiting areas that can handle that type of burden, you've really lost the benefit of segregating um, beds, beds wise. So I, I think that's going to be when uh, the crunch really comes is when we're pushed out of, you know, the beds or cubicles and we've got people in corridors and on chairs and on, you know, on the walls and ceilings and everywhere else yeah. is, you know, it, when, when, when have you lost any benefit of segregating and when does it, you know, become actually less risky to just just bung everyone in all together where you can manage flow better. Yeah, it's 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 you know it's managing risk and actually we're not quite sure what the risk you're managing against is, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think the the challenge for a number of departments is that there are staff who work in children's emergency care who have been deemed through their risk assessments. Uh, to, to try and avoid coming into contact with COVID. Now, in children's, that's been relatively easy because we've just not had the COVID load, but we don't know how yeah. that's going to change over the couple of months. And just redeploying everyone back together into one big mix isn't always an easy solution as well. My personal feeling is what is going to be different about this winter than previous winters is public expectation. Um, and that I, as we get into the busier October, November period, where we commonly have completely full waiting rooms, is whether the public will accept the fact that things are crowded. And previously, they've accepted it because they've known that the health system has been overwhelmed. And while they may have been uncomfortable about it, that they've probably just kept themselves to themselves. My worry is for the poor departments where the public start taking photos, sharing them with the media, etc. Um, and I think that will make things uncomfortable. And I hope staff don't feel under pressure because of that, because I can see some families getting quite upset uh, with the situation and staff are not going to be able to do anything about it. I think the other consideration is as well, what a position I hope we weren't going to be in, but, you know, cases, um, cases are rising nationally of COVID and hospitalizations are increasing. And there's clearly not uh, an attitude, um, um, uh, uh, an appetite for hardcore uh, lockdowns again. Um, and so I do wonder if hospitals are going to end up quite full you know, of patients with COVID in one way or another, and whether that's going to have a similar effect to what it did before and people being more hesitant to come to hospital or um, other redirection efforts. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting winter one way or another, I think. I, I love your use of the word interesting. There. Um, I mean, you know, as, as we all experienced over sort of lockdown, EDs across the country, the, the attendance you know, dropped off a cliff down 50% in a lot of places. Um, I cannot see that happening if there is a second lockdown in this country that people won't attend because I think that, that I don't know what you guys think, but I think there was a genuine sort of fear at that time of coming to hospital. And I think that 
potentially that fear factor is diminishing rapidly and that, that we won't see what we saw in March and April. I'll just get quickly on my, my soapbox. One of the things that I don't think that we've done yet nationally, although I am working with a load of people to to try and do this at least locally, is that one of the, the messages before was you must attend kind of ED, we're open, but we didn't celebrate the really good decisions that parents and carers made. We were in lockdown for a long period of time. And yes, there were some uh, isolated tragic cases of children uh, not being brought to the emergency department when perhaps they should have been. But these were, were very small numbers. Uh, and in fact, what we should be doing now is saying, look, uh, parents and goes, you did an amazing job in managing minor illness and injury for six months. Let's help you do that for the next six months when we really need you to do it. Uh, because as you say, Ian, we are going to be kind of crowded and overwhelmed. And now is the time to applaud the great decision making that was made. Yeah, that's a very valid point. Um, let's sort of move on slightly with COV, V for vital signs. Um, Alistair, what, what's your paper you've brought to sort of have a chat about? So um, I'm going to do something very unusual now, and I'm going to talk about something that isn't directly related to COVID. So I hope you're hanging on to your seats as we... Oh quickly veer direction and, and talk about what was uh, one, of, one of my favorite topics until about um, six or seven months ago and I haven't really thought about much since then but um, it's essentially about um, risks of uh, children with fever coming to the emergency department risks of them having um, serious or invasive infections and the utility of um, the types of screening tools or screening criteria that we commonly use to try and um, and risk stratify, um, and it's uh, it's really an observational study from uh, one of the uh, big paediatric emergency departments in London, looking at all of the children who came in with uh, a measured fever or whose uh, presenting problem was, you know, logged as being fever, um, looking at their outcomes and, you know, looking how many of them triggered different different warning signs and, and stuff like that. Um, now, I, lo- I love this type of paper because it's, in some ways, it's really simple and it's just not done enough because what we really want to know when we're managing these children is what is the risk of any given child coming in, you know, with, with a particular presentation? What is the risk that they've got the thing I'm really, really worried about. And that's been really hard to ascertain from the literature, actually, over the past few years. There were some good studies done decades ago, but we've had complete revolutions in um, the vaccination schedule, which is, you know, completely, almost completely eradicated HIB and has reduced the incidence of meningococcal disease and stuff. And, uh, And so really getting a good handle on, you know, we all get a feeling that not many of these kids are very sick, but it's been really hard to put numbers on them. And, and I think that's one of the great things about this paper. So they, they had about uh, just over 5,000 children in this cohort who came with, with a fever of some description. And then um, of those, they looked in more detail at uh, the children who would have uh, uh, triggered um, a sort of a red flag sign in some way. So either in the nice warning signs, uh, nice warning uh, you know the traffic light system, or yep. or one of the other um, 
sort of red flag systems. So I had about 1600 of these kids who had a fever and then, you know, had some sort of uh, red flag sign. And of, of these over 1600 um, kids who had a fever and, uh, you know, warning signs, the incidence of any invasive infection, so bacteremia, meningitis, whatever, was 0.4%. So of the most high of the group of kids we consider most high risk with having fever, it was only one in 250 um, actually had, you know, an invasive infection. And then, you know, there was uh, there was handfuls more who had uh, U- UTIs and pneumonias and stuff like that, which um, hopefully are a, li- a little bit worrisome and a bit easy to pick up. But yeah, I, yeah so sorry. I mean, that, the headline really from the paper was looking at the at, at things like their observations and warning scores and stuff. And they're just, they just perform so badly. Um, but because I think the instance of this stuff is so rare, it's so hard for any, uh, you know, scoring system or anything based, particularly on based on physiological values, like heart rate and, and respiratory rate to really be, be of any use. So that was the sort of the headline was these, uh, these scores do are not very good. We, we need to have a think about what we're doing. Yeah, and it's I, I agree with you. I think th- talking about risk is really interesting. And you know, uh, when I have sort of medical students that accompany me, and they want me to go, this is this, this is the diagnosis, this is what I do. And actually, a lot of the time, what I'm doing is is simply, well, not simply, but is is risk managing. And it's this concept of what do you take as an acceptable risk. And I know, Damien, this is something you've thought about a lot before. Is uh, you know what 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 is acceptable risk to a healthcare professional maybe totally different as an acceptable risk to parents and that's something that we've not really sort of looked at so far no i mean it's actually an amazing gap in both the literature and our personal practice now there's a few groups beginning to work on this um but i think it amazes me that we didn't sort this kind of a, a decade ago is that for any given child who presents, the dissonance between a clinician looking at a child and going, okay, the risk of this happening is this. If I don't do anything, the risk of this happening is this, and this is why I'm making that decision. But what, while we talk safety netting to parents, we don't really engage with them a lot in, in understanding their level of risk. Now, I try and do that in all the consultations where I do review. And a lot of my decision-making isn't always based on the exact clinical criteria a patient has, i.e. their heart rate, their respiratory rate, but it's more to do the understanding that a parent or carer has in why I'm making that decision and what might happen if I've either got things right or got things wrong. And that dialogue is critical because when mistakes do happen, and they always will do, um, it's that, that shared understanding of why we're doing what we're doing that helps the fallout afterwards. Um, and, and I think it just it amazes me that we, we don't have more on this particular topic. Yeah. So okay. So if you're chatting about risk, do, do you sort of how do you phrase that? Do, do you talk about numbers to parents, or is it sort of an under, getting their understanding of what the risks are of of sending home versus doing potentially unnecessary interventions, etc.? Yeah. So, so I mean, I. I I actually personally try and avoid numbers uh, because one, I don't know them well enough, I suppose, myself. Um, And I also, I think it's a bit harsh on the parent in an acute situation where they're worried about their child to try and bamboozle them, uh, really. 
What I do try and explain, though, is the, the reason that I've reached a decision where I think that child is safe to go home and my reasons for doing that, but also clearly explaining there is a number of possibilities of things that might happen in the next 24 hours or the next couple of days. Um, and I explain what those things might be uh, and what are the criteria for returning over what time period. And it's that time period that, that's quite important. And um, what I'm looking for is the parent's or carer's response to that. The reason being is it, it, it's interesting is that if you have a child who has uh, is, is an infant, let's say three to four weeks with a fever, um, a lot of them actually can be relatively unwell with a serious bacterial illness. And I'm defining that as you're just, you, you culture something, uh, you, you culture something, which is slightly different from an invasive bacterial illness where you know that there's been an impact for, for that illness. But actually those children have quite a bit of time to sometimes return so that even if you do miss something, uh, they're not suddenly going to collapse. The real challenge comes with what, in my belief, it's group A strep, where you have a three and a half year old who presents one minute, maybe completely well, and six hours later, maybe moribund. Um, and, and so there's a difference in, in terms of the advice I give, give for what I think the infections might be. Um, and, and it's about understanding what the parenting care is going to accept in terms of when they might need to come back and, and, and the mechanism by which they are going to pick up on signs and symptoms. Um, but it, it's still, I, I wish I had more evidence to support some of my rationale behind this. So this, I mean, this is, you know, the, the, the principle of good safety netting, and it's trying to explain this is my expectation of this illness, that this is highly likely to be viral for example and this is my expectation of what will happen over the next few days and here's when I'm worried and here's the things that would concern me and here's the things that you would need to when you would need to come back um, and I guess it's sort of being very explicit about that so you're not really sort of saying yeah as you say you're not talking numbers here's the risk of x y and z um, but it's it's sort of saying here's why I'm not worried. Here's what I would be worried about, and and empowering parents to sort of use that information. Is that sort of roughly what you're saying? Yeah, and and the other thing is context, and this is what I try and explain to my juniors all the time. My decision making process may be completely different on a Monday morning compared to a Sunday afternoon for the same child with the same symptoms. The reason being is on a very busy Sunday afternoon, where uh, a Sunday evening, where I'm con <coughs> excuse me, sorry cognitively overloaded because of all the patients there I worry about my decision making process so I may either err on the side of caution um, or I may have been given the ability because it's been so over uh, overcrowded that the patient's already been observed for four to six hours in the department yeah. so I can be more confident if you pitch up on a Monday morning and actually there's very few people in the department I don't have any trajectory of illness to go on so I might make a different decision because the information and the context of that decision is different and that's really difficult to teach but I think it also explains why sometimes juniors get frustrated well why did Dr Rowland make this decision now but a couple of weeks ago he made a completely different one but the patient was the same uh, but that context is absolutely critical yeah and i think that's something that does frustrate trainees doesn't it is that and it frustrates um, parents as well uh, because yeah, i think they why, see sometimes the same thing happening yeah well why did what you know the 
there's the this is the art of it, isn't it? As well as just the science. This is why, you know, this person managed it this way, and this person's got exactly the same patient and has managed it entirely differently. Um, and as you say, context is is really important. Um, anything else that you took away from the the paper, Ali? Um, I think just it highlights the really difficult position we're in now in pediatrics a really fortunate position but a really difficult one where we sort of sell ourselves um as you know our main job is being to to find these kids these really rare kids who are really really sick and to and to save them um and when you know we've sort of because of the success of vaccinations and that sort of stuff we're we're now we've put ourselves in a really impossible situation where the the haystack is bigger than it's ever been and there's fewer needles, but the, the pressure to find the needles is really, really high. And we keep trying to come up with um, scoring systems or, or, or other things to help. And um, I think there needs to be a bit of an appreciation of, of quite what a complex problem this is and that there aren't any simple solutions. And I think perhaps... Um, hopefully this paper could serve as um, you know a springboard for talking about well you know what what are the potential downsides of you know doing all of these scores and all these tools and other things for all of these kids when when the success rate of them is so low you know are we creating alarm fatigue are we creating a distraction is this just additional paperwork without without benefiting you know how, where can we redirect our efforts and I do think that um you know training people in providing good safety net advice and helping parents to understand that you know we when we send them home it's because they they look fine now at the point that i'm sending them home but that we we recognize that the trajectory of illness changes over a period of time and it and it's always we think that they're fine now but you know it's it's up to the parent to see how things change over the next few days and particularly because i think we all appreciate as Damien said, that for the really serious infections, um, so, you know, for bacterial sepsis and stuff, the decline can be so rapid that it's making parents feel really comfortable in a decision to come back. And so that's something that I always highlight is, you know, if anyone's ever, I, you know, I always say, if anyone is at home having a conversation saying, oh, the doctor said he was fine, I don't want to waste anybody's time, that is the point at which you should be coming back in. If anyone's concerned enough to have that conversation than then then just come back and yeah i think making parents feel comfortable to come back when things change or if things change is is key yeah um i think one of the things i say to parents is you know here's you know highlighting here's why i'm not worried here are the things that i'd be worried about here's what i i can and can't see which make me comfortable about them going home when you're not for one second saying your child's perfectly well and i do talk a bit about the difference between the, the phrase I use is poorly versus sick. So poorly being you feel under the weather, you feel rotten, you've got a temperature, but you'll get over it yourself versus sick is somebody needs to help me uh, make this child better. Um, and and I, I do talk in terms of, you know, you know your child better than I ever, ever will do. And if you, you know, you're comfortable, this is what poorly looks like. If you think that child has changed from poorly to sick, then you come back straight away. Um, and I think many people do sort of something very similar. Um, let's move on then to I interventions. Anybody got any interventions they want to talk about at the moment? 
I mean, I, I don't think there's anything new that has massively emerged in the literature in the next, so in the last couple of of months since we last spoke, that is a game changer for kind of uh, emergency medicine or acute pediatric research. There's a, a couple of interesting um, uh, discussion points. Uh, I don't think we should go through it now, but uh, Nate Cooperman and his team in, in Pecan in America. Uh, a byproduct of the big DKA study they did was looking at cognitive decline following having uh, an episode of, of DKA. Um, and they ha- I think they've got some preliminary evidence that there is evidence of a deterioration. And I think it's just a good example of, I know we debate a lot about, okay, should we give loads of fluids or, or not? Does that cause cerebral edema? One of the underlying things is we need to get DKA under control, uh, both in the before it happens, so we stop it happening, or as quickly as possibly can, because there clearly is some effect of it happening. Um, and I think I need to spend a bit more time looking at the paper. But I think in the same way that we've been late to the game in looking at concussion in head injury um, and some of the, the ongoing support we need for that, I wonder if we're going to need to start doing that for DKA as well. Yeah. Um, let's move on then to the, to the last... Uh, letter D dilemmas, and I guess the paper was it the, the the letter that I've brought highlights some of the dilemmas. Um, so this is a letter that was written to archives uh, in June of this year um, by a team in in uh, London, looking at the they describe the rising incidence of abusive head trauma during the pandemic, um, and you know we during lockdown with this sort of significant decline in attendance and that the question of where have all the poorly kids gone um, that, that sort of raised multiple times. Um, I guess what this this letter was trying to do was um, highlight that, there, you know, whilst lockdown may be important, actually there are significant uh, potential unintended consequences of that. And um, essentially this what this paper did was it... Um, looked at the sort of the instance of abusive head trauma uh, during the month of uh, end of March to the end of April uh, when we we're in the UK we were in lockdown um, and showed you know f- from their data a really significant increase in the cases of abusive head trauma um, however as Damien pointed out before the podcast there are some issues with this um, do you want to explain what they might have been Damien yeah so I mean I think so I, it's really difficult, and, and I, I don't want to be guilty of uh, kind of taking on other researchers' piece of work without a right to reply. Um, yeah. And I think anything during COVID that examined the incidence of particular events is important. And I've done and published that work myself. So I, I think this was an important piece of research because there was a real feeling that uh, safeguarding could be an issue and that children may come to harm because of of lockdown so there's nothing wrong with this type of research and what the group did was just look at all the children who presented with abusive head trauma uh, to a particular uh, institution which was Great Ormond Street over a period of time and compare that with the previous three years nothing wrong with that what they found was was a 1,490 percent increase now that's what very inter- specific damien that's a very specific <laughs> amount of increase yeah. and, and i suppose that's my point it just there was something about it that immediately rings well isn't that a bit weird i mean it, it was only 10 children anyway was was yeah. seen during this time period so it, to me 
I'm really sorry, it's just alarmist. The, the, the structure of presenting the results in that way, I don't think was hugely, again, I'm, I'm trying not to be disparaging against other researchers, but was just too blunt and was not put with a couple of limitations. And my understanding was, is that because of the system change in London during that time period, only Great Ormond Street were seeing these type of patients. So an increase was almost inevitable. Um, but I, I'm waiting to, to have confirmation on that. And, and I suppose my, my flag waving is, is not about, please do this type of research, it's really important, but there is a public context to it. And this paper has an art matrix of 352. It's been picked up by 28 news outlets. And I think we have a responsibility just to be balanced in our approach. Yeah, um, because it, the thing that struck me about this, and it's, as you say, it's got a lot of traction, sort of Twitter and the media. The thing that struck me was this was, was seemed to be totally contrary to what we were seeing locally in that the number of referrals to social care, the number of child protection medicals locally seemed to plummet. Um, and that was really concerning uh, to say, where have all the children who have sustained non-accidental injury gone? And actually that was far more of a worry that actually they are not being brought to the attention of of, of social care and uh, health services yeah, and agree and, and actually that's why i think this type of research is really important because we need to understand those processes and i've been quite vocal about uh, kind of this concept of delayed presentations not being as significant as people were led to believe but i am utterly convinced that the community harm or the harm that's occurred that didn't need acute attention is almost certainly going to have occurred and is still a ticking time bomb to see the net result of it. Um, and so I think the, the, the safeguarding and understanding that the problems of chronic conditions, yes, please get out there, let's have a look at this and let's understand it. But again, it, the, the context is absolutely critical. Absolutely. Um, Ali, any other sort of dilemmas that you've come across at all? Um not affecting acute pediatric care at the moment i think i think all the i think all the dilemmas are coming in the in the next few weeks although just a big shout out to rhinovirus um i just want to give a big Go thank rhinovirus. you to rhinovirus for completely ruining the last month of everyone's life in the children's emergency department i mean i was not i don't know but i don't know anyone else but i was not prepared for that level of rapid rise in presentation of hot hot wheezy children and it's just yeah it's funny it's been for anyone who's interested it's been seen elsewhere as as well in many, in many other european countries and it happened in australia over their winter as well even though they their lockdowns completely eradicated their flu season they had almost no flu at all uh rhinovirus just came to center stage um and yeah i've just been really enjoying that over the past few weeks so yeah <laughs> respect to the rhino <laughs> absolutely yeah um gents i think we will wrap it up there um that's been really interesting damien i love the framework um you need to make sure you patent that asap thank you i, I will do I, i'm on it now somebody will steal it otherwise um but that's been a really uh interesting chat about um what's happening at the moment in, in the world of sort of acute and emergency pediatrics um i hope you found it useful and um we must do it again sometime <laughs>